A reading for the Old Testament this morning comes to us from uh, the book of Psalms, uh, chapter 33, verses 6 through 11. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap, and he puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, but the plans of his heart to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this opportunity to worship you this morning. Father, as we open your word, may you graciously open our minds and teach us your ways so that we might walk in your truth for the glory of your kingdom. Amen. Since moving back to Texas, my, my family and I have had the visit opportunity to visit my parents on a more uh, regular basis. And since my grandmother's death several years ago, uh, my parents have taken over my grandparents' farm out in East Texas. And it's been kind of amazing to show my kids this magical place that I got to visit when I was a kid. I mean, there's like pastures and barns to explore, and uh, there's woods and creeks to play in. But one of my favorite places to go as a kid was to my grandparents' church, Memorial Presbyterian Church in San Augustine, Texas. And it was founded in 1838, and and according to several accounts, it's the oldest Presbyterian church in Texas. And that's kind of cool, but as a kid, um, that was not an important detail. right? What what was important, there were two things. right? First, before the service, uh, my brother, sister, and I were always allowed to ring the church bell. They had this old bell and this little hidden door in the back wall of the church, and you got to go in, and there's this vertical tunnel, and you you jump up on the rope, and you pull it down with all your might, and you get to ring the church bell that you can hear throughout the whole town. It's pretty cool. But the even better part was Dr. McAdow, the pastor. I don't know how he did it, but every after every single sermon, he'd come up to my brother, sister, and I, and he'd pull a quarter out of each one of our ears. I have no idea how he did this. And, and I don't know how he would do it. I mean, sometimes he'd have a jacket on, and we, just, we were convinced that he had quarters hidden up his sleeves. I mean, he had three of them, because there's three of us. But sometimes, in the middle of summer, it's a hot church, there's no air conditioning, and so he wouldn't have a jacket on, and his sleeves would be rolled up. Right? Where on earth would these quarters come from? We had no idea. But we did know um, that these did not come out of thin air. These didn't come out of nothing. There in his hand was this shiny new quarter that he claimed came out of our ears. Right? It, was, it was mesmerizing as a kid. And in his book on physics, the ancient philosopher Aristotle said that out of nothing comes nothing. Absolutely nothing. Everything has to come from somewhere or something, right? As it turns out, those magical quarters weren't so magical at all. And this morning, as we continue our series on the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we find ourselves at what scholars call, uh, they call it the hinge doctrine. Right? It's this doctrine or belief that bridges the gap between the doctrine of God and the first eight questions. And, and then we move on to the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of man. And this doctrine that we're going to study today is called ex nihilo, which is Latin for out of nothing. The Shorter Catechism, question number nine, addresses creation. 
It, it addresses the creation of our universe and how God spoke our, our world into existence out of nothing. And so question number nine is this. What is the work of creation? The work of creation is God's making of all things out of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days, and it was all very good. God's making of all things out of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days, and all very good. God created the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. Right? And this idea that God created the universe out of nothing shouldn't surprise us because at one point in time, the Bible tells us that there was literally nothing except God in existence. Hmm. That's not going to work because at that, one point in time, that can't be a thing because time didn't really exist either. Right? Nothing was the only thing that existed. That, that, that kind of sounds like nothing is a thing, but that's not really going to work either. The point I'm trying to make is that before the universe was, was God. And before God created the heavens and the earth, all that existed was God. There was absolutely nothing, nothing else around. Genesis 1-2 says that the earth was formless and void. Right? Not even the air in the middle of a donut. Right? That's nothing in there. Not even that, because that's made up of nitrogen and oxygen, and those elements are a thing. Right? Before that was made... There was nothing, no thing. I'm repeating myself over and over again because I want you to get this concept that there was nothing long before the universe and the heavenly hosts were brought into existence. Nothing existed. So how do we come into being? The first sentence in the Bible tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The mere fact that our God uh, made everything has immense implications on the way that we view the world, the way that we view ourselves, the way that we view one another, and even how uh, the way that we view God Himself. So I think it's a really important thing, important concept to understand. So this morning we're going to take a look at Psalm 33, right, verses 6 through 11, and, and these support the Catechism's claim that God made all things out of nothing by the word of His power. So when we explore our passage in the book of Psalms this morning, we can discover a few things uh, about God's power that we find in light of his ability to create something out of absolutely nothing. First, we can plainly see that God's power is unlimited. Right? It's complete. God's power is complete, and it is second to none. And we're also going to see that God's power demands our worship. When we observe the reality uh, of the world around us, when we uh, discover the intricateness of God's creation, and God's immense power should drive us to our knees as we gaze upon him and gaze upon his mighty works. And finally, we're going to discover that God, God's power has a purpose. As we say in the Lord's Prayer each week, right? His kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God has a purpose. If you haven't already, please pull out your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 33. Right? And if you didn't bring a Bible with you this week, that's okay. You should be able to find one under the seat in front of you. Or I know some of you tech-savvy folk love to have it on your phone. But either way, I, I think it's really helpful to have the text in front of me when I study God's Word, so I, you might find it uh, helpful and beneficial for you this morning. But let us begin by looking at verse 6, Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. 
When writing about this verse, Calvin claims uh, that the psalmist has all of creation in mind, both the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And regardless of the scope of creation that is being addressed here, we can uh, easily understand the important bit, right? That God spoke. God spoke and it came to be. God spoke and it happened. This concept comes directly from the creation narrative that we find in, uh, in Genesis 1. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Right? This seems to be a common theme in the creation count. And God said, let there be plants, right? let there be bearing, uh, plants that bear seeds and, and fruit trees, and, and there they were. And it was so. And God said, let the, wa- let the waters swarm with living creatures, and, and it was so. And God said, let there be uh, on earth living creatures, and it happened. And God said, and God said, and God said, let us make man in our own image. And here we are. It was so. So regardless of your view on creation, whether it be a uh, literal six days or uh, six periods of time, we see that God is the author of our world. He spoke creation into existence. That's a truth that's important for us. Where else do we see this level of power and might in the universe? I don't know if you've slowed down enough to think about it, but we have some people with uh, pretty uh, creative and, uh, and, and, and wonderful gifts in our own church. We have people who create dishes, right, that, that people pay really good money to eat. We have some that can take a little bit of dirt uh, and they can take water and seeds and, and cultivate this into actual food. That's a pretty cool power. That's one I don't have. Right? We have people who have the ability to put wires and capacitors and all these things together and, and talk to people with giant antennas on the other side of the world. That blows my mind. That's, that's amazing. Right? The list goes on and it goes on. And, and we may be made in the image of God. We are given the ability to create wonderful things, wonderful works of art. But at the end of the day, are we really creating things out of nothing? Right? Are we just rearranging the things that God has already given us? Our God is a powerful God. He created something out of nothing. And so at the end of the day, everything can fall into two different categories. Right? We have God himself. It's category number one. And then there's that which God has created. It's category number two. There's no third category here. Right? Everything else has a beginning in time. It's contingent on something else, and it is created. Right? God is not like a human builder who has the ability to make something beautiful and long-lasting, um, but is limited by the material that he has to work with. Our God is not limited by anything. So what must we take away from this creation account in Genesis and in Psalm this morning is that God's power is completely unlimited in nature. Right? And this is a foundational truth that is not only found in the Word of God, but uh, the Bible tells us that it's evident in creation. Right? In Paul's letter to the Romans, he writes, For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Right? They're clearly seen ever since the creation of the world and all of the things that were made. Right? We have this ability to see the world around us and to know that there must be something greater than us. I mean, no sane person would look at the clock on the wall and think that these springs and these wheels and gears and all of these uh, wires just are put into the perfect place, right? So that every second on the second, the little hand moves. 
No, an, inter- an intricate design of a clock begs the point that there must be a clockmaker. Right? So how much more intricate are the cells in our bodies, right, that make up a muscle attached to a bone that wiggle a finger? I mean, the delicate balance of our ecosystem was purposely designed by a creator, our creator. Sometimes these things seem fairly obvious, but for many they're not. How is this done? Right, the psalmist writes, by the breath of his mouth, the heavens were made. Look with me at verse 9. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Wow. The implications of this unlimited power thing are huge. And it's a necessary foundation for understanding everything else written in Scripture after it. Right, our Creator spoke, and out of nothing came absolutely everything that we know. I find it entertaining that modern science, uh, they have this concept built in their narrative too. Right? They, they may not use the, the terminology that we use, but if you look at it and if you think about it, it's all still there. If you Google the Big Bang Theory, well, you're going to get a bunch of pictures of a sitcom TV show, but, but if you remove the word theory right, and you Google Big Bang, right? you get, um, your search inquiries are going to show that there's a concept similar to our biblical one. Hang on with me. The Big Bang Theory is a physical theory, right? It describes how the universe expanded in its initial state of this high density and temperature. And they call this little high density temperature thing that everything came from, they call it singularity, right? And their beginning was singularity. In their cosmology, the, in cosmology, in modern science, big, the Big Bang Theory is, is king. And over the years, there's been lots of theories that are given to explain the creation of the universe, but for the most part, ast- astronomers are convinced that this is the best theory that we have. Catch that? Scientists, many who deny uh, the existence of God, agree that they agree on a couple things that we agree on. They agree that the universe had a beginning. And at the beginning was something. It was this stuff, right? This thing they call singularity. I don't know about you, but to me, the, uh, it looks like the Bible might be onto something. Right? In the beginning, there was nothing, nothing but this one thing. And that one thing, out of this one thing, everything was created. And I'm not going to propose from the pulpit that God banged this Big Bang thing, right? I'm not going to say that, but I, but I do what I'm trying to show is that when we look at creation, whether from a biblical or from a scientific point or perspective, it really does seem like the Bible's onto something. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Right? We're all still at the end of the day getting to the same conclusion that there was a beginning. And at the beginning there was a stuff. Right? There was a singularity. I'd say that there is God. Right, science is getting pretty close. But they just refuse to accept the possibility of a God. But their science is pointing into this thing, this substance that they can't explain. But I believe that the Bible provides us an answer. Right? God spoke, and it, and it came to be. The power of God is unrivaled in our universe. The power of our God is unlimited. 
And this fact, this doctrine of ex nihilo, this doctrine of he created everything out of nothing hinges, right? It hinges and it opens this door for our understanding to the world. And it allows us to understand the truths that we can mine out of the rest of the word of God. God's power is unlimited. In Psalm 33, we see that God's power is unlimited, but we also see that God's power demands our worship. Please look with me at verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. What jumps out at you when we read this verse 8? Right, right now would be a really good time to be uh, looking down at the words in your Bible because it, it, this is why it helps to have it open because, um, while we're learning together because we can see that this verse is in some distinct parts. Right? Most, uh, most of our English translations help us out here a lot. Right? And they place these two phrases, these two parts of this verse on different lines. Right? What do they have in common? Let's read it again. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Those two parts are different. But if you look closely, it almost seems to repeat itself. Those two lines are using a little bit different words, but it's saying the same thing. Let all the earth, or let all the inhabitants of the world, fear or stand in awe of the Lord. If you were here last week uh, for Pastor's sermon, um, you would would have heard him say that that in ancient Hebrew, there were no exclamation points. Right, so uh, you would have heard him say that uh, the way the Old Testament authors would emphasize a statement, right, the way that they would say, like, hey, look over here, this is, this is important, the way the psalmist would do this was to repeat himself, repeat a phrase. Right? And this phrase is repeated, and it makes, uh, it makes this statement important. So let's take this phrase in, in the context that it was written in. Right? Verse six, is, 6 and 7 uh, speak to how powerful God is. Right? He spoke creation into existence. Verse 7 reads, He gathers the waters of the sea in a heap, and He puts the deeps into storehouses. Power is absolutely unrivaled. Right? Water covers almost uh, three-fourths of the surface of the world. Right? Of our planet, you've got three-fourths of the surface is covered in water. And I, I just picture that God's got these huge hands, and, and, and I see him gathering up the oceans, right, building these little sand walls, just like a kid at the beach. And he goes here, plop, right, ocean, here's your boundaries. And he plops them down precisely where he wants to on the face of the planet. That's a silly picture, but it, it, it's a silly picture that shows us the awesomeness of our Creator, the hugeness, the immensity. And what does the awesomeness of our God do? Right here we stand, right? We stand here, uh, jaws wide open, trying to wrap our minds around the immense power of this being doing these things to these elements that take up three-fourths of our world's surface, right? There's this immense power, and there's this precision, and there's this love, and this, there, there, there's a care that's built in to what God has for his creation. Right? And when we pause to wrap our minds around that, wrap our minds around God's unlimited power, I think that it garners our attention. That's exactly what the Bible tells us. Right? And it demands our worship as we stand in fear, as we stand in awe of Him. The prophet Isaiah writes about the greatness of God, and, and this is probably one of my favorite chapters in the Bible at this moment, is Isaiah chapter 40. 
And Isaiah, and Isaiah really gets into uh, the greatness and grandness of God. So I want to read a, a section for you. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span right, and closed uh, the dust of the earth in a measure? the cup, right? Who has made, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills on a balance? God sits above the earth, the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Right? People and the animals are like grasshoppers to God who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. And he spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Creator. That's who does these things. God. Have you ever been to the ocean? You've gone down to the beach and you've just stood there on the shore. You just stood there on the shore and look out on the water. And you, Have you ever just had one of those moments? You can be sitting there playing with your kids, and I get it, and it doesn't take long to just have that moment where you're looking out over the water and you just get this feeling of greatness. This, this expanse that just, like, your mind just goes, how far does this go? I, 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 can't, I can't see the end of the ocean, right? And you're just in complete awe of the grandness of the scope of what God did in creation. I was talking to Dr. Holcomb this week, and, and he's in Alaska. And he said that negative 30 is kind of cold, um, in case you were wondering. But he also mentioned the mountains. And then he mentioned the majesty of these mountains and how big and how grand they are. Right? Maybe you've taken a trip out west to Colorado, or you've gone to the Grand Canyon and stood on the, stood on the rim and just look over this big hole, or maybe you've even gone to Big Bend here in Texas. You ever just stood at the edge of God's creation and just paused to take in the view? What does that feel like? Mesmerizing. It's also terrifying. Right? There isn't just this state of awe, but there is this fear. Right? This fear that encompasses the vastness of the depths of the unknown as we stand there and stare out on the ocean. Right? This state of awe in God's creation. This state of fear that the psalmist is writing about here in Psalm 33, it flows. It flows from this innate knowledge of how powerful our Creator is and how helpless we are as His created beings. The awesomeness of God compels us to worship Him. When was the last time you've paused from our busy lives just to let that soak in? What we can find out about God's power does not stop there. God's power is unlimited. It's unmatched in our universe, right? It is in the intensity of this revelation that God's power demands our worship. Pausing to take a second and observe all that God has created has this tendency to bring humanity to its knees, and it compels us to worship Him. And you don't have to be a Christian to get this. I've got lots of friends in Colorado who do not believe in the God of the Bible, but they go to the top of a mountain and they still get that same feeling. They look out over this thing and think, man, wow. Something must have created this. Something has power and I don't. Psalm 33 also shows us that God's power is purposeful. God's power has a purpose, both in his intellect and in his will. So I'd like to talk about that for a minute, right? First, we see that God is Uh, has purpose in his intellect, in his knowledge. Please look with me again at verse 7. He gathers the water in the seas as a heap, and he puts the deep into storehouses. 
That's a, that's a pretty interesting claim, right? He puts uh, the waters in the heap. This this word really kind of stood out to me. It's it's not one you find in scriptures very often, and and to me it's just a heap. What's a heap? Right? It's this lump of just or a pile of unorganized stuff, right, thrown to the side. But what is, how's it used in the Bible? If we look at this word uh, as it's used in the Old Testament, it's used four different times, right? And they're all in reference to water, which is kind of interesting. And it's all being uh, uh, in reference to water being thrown aside. Like when Moses parted the Red Sea and and everything was just thrown into the heap to the side. It was thrust aside, right? There's not a lot of care or purpose in this action. It's just boom, right? The water just gathered, thrown into a pile. I kind of alluded to this earlier, but it really makes me think of my kids playing at the beach. Have you ever taken the kids to the beach? It's exhausting, <laughs> right? But I found that the, the, the secret to uh, getting over this exhaustion and the secret to relaxing at the beach is just to get a chair and you sit down and you watch your kids play in the sand. Yeah, I, I can sit there and watch that for, that's better than a TV show, right? I love doing that. It's fascinating because it, it doesn't matter what kid you do this to. But if you give a kid a shovel and a bucket, all the kids do the same thing, right? They dig a hole. They're going to carve out the sides, right? And then they build this wall, right? And they build this little, maybe it's a moat around a castle. Maybe it's just a giant hole, right? And then they dig this hole and they get this bright idea. They're like, oh, I've got a bucket. I'm going to go fill this up with the waves. I'm going to fill up my hole. I'm going to fill up my moat. Every kid does the exact same thing, and they scoop up water, and they try to fill their hole. And, and what happens to the water as it gets poured into the sand? It disappears, right? It disappears every time. And the kid is just left, right? Trying to, uh, and they just keep trying to fill it up faster and faster and faster before it all just disappears into the sand. Where does this water go? I, I, I don't really know. But as I read this verse, I, I picture God building up these seashores by hand. Right, he's carving them out of the sand and then tossing the water. Right, one big ocean over here. We've got another big ocean over here and a Gulf of Mexico here. And, and we've got all these bodies of water here and there. Right, only this time the, wall, the water stays within those sand wall boundaries. Have you ever thought of that? When we dig a hole, the water goes away. <laughs> the psalmist also writes, immediately after these, throwing these things in the heap, The psalmist writes, he puts the deeps, he's talking about oceans, he puts the deeps into storehouses. Putting something into a storehouse is not this haphazard action like throwing something to the side, right? And throwing something into a heap. Putting something into a storehouse uh, has intention behind it, right? There's a purposely built storage container, right? And then you put the grain or you put the water and you put these things into it with this expressed uh, intention of using that, storing that substance and using it sometime later. Like God powerfully created this world out of nothing with intentionality. He has a purpose, right? He's got a purpose and an order to his world. What was once pure chaos is now this intricate, perfectly designed system built for us. Westminster Confession says that God's work of creation manifests the goodness, the wisdom, and the power of God. And he built this world for us. We're going to talk about that a little bit tonight when we get into the creation of man. 
But God's powerful is purposeful as seen in his intellect. Right? We see that there's, we see an intelligence. There's an intelligence built into the system of how this universe works. There's an intelligent design that points us towards a necessary designer. But our designer is not only purposeful in his intellect, he's also purposeful in his will. Please look with me at verses 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Most non-religious people you talk to uh, believe in some sort of God or some sort of being or some sort of higher power. Right? The magnificence of creation drives most humans to the conclusion that there has to be something, right? something bigger, something greater, something in the heavens maybe that created this world that we live in. Many of these people will get that far on their own. The Bible tells us that. But that's where this God thing stops for them. Their idea of a creator is someone who made this universe and now maybe just sits up in his throne with his arms crossed and watches the world unfold without a care in the world. The other majority of these, non, uh, these non-religious, non-believers, right, are pantheists. You ever heard that term before, pantheism? That means they believe that God resides in the manifestations of the universe, right? God is in us, right? God's in the trees. He's in the chair over there. He's in the sun. He's in the moon. He's in the stars, right? God is more of a, a harmony or a mindless love that holds, it's just this glue that holds our world together. This sounds nice, but it's not what the Bible tells us. What does the Bible say about our creator? Let's keep going back to the Bible. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that our powerful creator has a purpose. He has a will for his people, right? He cares for his creation. He guides our creation, right? Despite our best efforts to mess it up. Our passage that we just read uh, says that he frustrates the plans of the people. Thank goodness, right? In his commentary on Psalm 33, Calvin writes about this and I think this is extremely relevant in our in our state of uh, our state of just America in 2024. But almost 500 years ago, Calvin acknowledges that men are continually scheming up ways uh, against our laws and ways against our own justice systems. Right? They're scheming up ways for them to turn the world upside down so that they can acquire power and step all over good people. Apparently, the state of our world hasn't changed so much in the last 500 years. Right, this injustice seems to be a re- reoccurring theme over and over. That the king of God, um, would, <laughs> that, that this king tries to be God, or maybe these rulers want to be their own gods. And this just continually happens over and over and over again. But within our passage, uh, with our passage in view, Calvin writes about this, and he says, it is very necessary to consider that God's power and protection is set in opposition to their fury. And he mentions that God does not intercede because he delights on frustrating their plans who scheme for their own glory, but he intercedes on our behalf to check their unprovoked cruelty. God's a loving God who steps in, who steps in because he cares about his creation, his people, even when his people are silly. 
The Bible does not speak of an impersonal God sitting in the heavens with his arms crossed. Right? The Bible tells us that his, his arms are outstretched. Right? They're outstretched down through the heavens and by his ultimate, by his unmatched power, by, according to his will. He brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. And he frustrates the best laid plans of the people that they devise themselves. Right? At the cost of others. Our God's an all-powerful and interceding God. Church, we don't gather today to worship this, uh, just an ultimate and powerful God, and powerful creator of this universe. We worship a living God whose word is living and active, sharper than two, any two-edged sword. Right? Our God has a purpose. He has a purpose for his creation. His word reassures us that, he, that the counsel of the Lord stands forever and the plans of his heart to all generations will stand firm and cannot be changed by the foolishness of man's best efforts to mess up our broken world. God's power has a purpose. Our God has a will, and our God has made a way for us. And that way came to us in the form of a man. Right, A man who was fully God, yet fully human. Right, And this man lived an absolutely perfect life, one that you and I couldn't do. Because you and I, despite our best efforts, just keep messing up. We miss the mark of God's perfect standard. And we are in need of a Savior. And God so loved the world, right? He so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in Jesus might be clothed in Christ's righteousness and have life everlasting. You see, there was no man. There is no devil strong enough or cunning enough or sharp enough to stop God's purpose. For his people. Our God has a purpose and he loves his creation. That's comforting. This morning we found that the power of our creator is unlimited. It's unmatched in this entire universe because the awesomeness of his glory, right? God's power demands our worship. And it's precisely because of God's power, because it is unlimited, that he was able to overcome death. He overcame death on the cross and was resurrected three days later. Our powerful God takes on our punishment because he loves us and he has a purpose and he has a will for us. And that, my friends, is really good news. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We praise you because you are an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-caring, all-loving God. And we come to you today to worship you. So may our hearts, may our words, may our thoughts be pleasing to you this morning. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen.